You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. So happy to be here today. This is my spot. This is my place. Um, I just absolutely love what I do. So grateful to be joined today by Mr. Shane Hurlbut, ASC, um, cinematographer with a very wide range of work. We're going to get into what we can that time allows. Uh, he's uh, done television, commercials, music videos, um, some films that you will know, and especially a, media, a music video that if you're of a certain age, you heard every day at a certain time. Uh, so first of all, I would like to talk with you about Resident Alien, which you guys can check out on NBC Peacock Streaming, Hulu, or Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, Shane shot the pilot, and what I always like to do, Shane, is have the guests tell us what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for having me on. Uh, I, I love sitting down and talking with with uh, other filmmakers like yourself and just kind of, you know, really talking about and, and inspiring uh, other filmmakers to kind of, you know, grab the torch and, and take it from all of us and, and uh, take their creativity uh, even higher. So, yeah, so Resident Alien... Uh, was one of those shows where when I got the pilot script, I was like, oh my God, this is brilliantly written. And then I immediately looked up Chris Sheridan. And Chris Sheridan was the lead writer for A Family Guy, which is one of the funniest uh, shows that I've ever watched. I mean, the political incorrectness, the uh, just the <laughs> the wrong way to go about everything is just, and the the flipping everything on side itself is exactly what Resident Alien also has in it. So you know, the show is about this alien that crash lands. He's been sent down from his alien planet to uh, basically destroy ours. And uh, he has this extermination bomb that he is going to lay into uh, the Rocky Mountains and uh, is going to uh, take out our planet so they can reap all the resources uh, and all of the, you know, the, you know, just uh, be able to strip the planet. So uh, he's struck by lightning and crash lands in the middle of the Rockies. And he uh, finally gets himself down to a uh, lake and finds this very uh, kind of, uh, you know, out in the middle of nowhere cabin. And he stumbles on to the person in the cabin. And uh, what this alien life form has is um, it's able to assume the identity of the person that he exterminates. So he uh, makes quick uh, death to this, um, you know, doctor that happened to be living in the cabin that he came across, and he turns into this person, and that's played by Alan Turek, which is he is so good in this uh, in this show, and uh, so all of a sudden, you know, at, we see all this happen, and then the police show up at. Uh, the cabin's front door and they're knocking on it and they're wondering where he is and uh, he's out uh, in the middle of this huge lake fishing 
So he pulls the, the boat up and they say, uh, hey, do you mind coming down to, uh, we have a dead body and we need you to, to uh, figure out how he was killed, if it was a murder or an accident. So he goes down and uh, he immediately is engulfed in this small little town called Paradise, Colorado, or Pleasant, Colorado, something like that. And it is a, a town that is only able to get access six months out of the year. The roads are covered in snow, so everything has to be flown in um, for this uh, bustling little town to survive. Um, and so he uh, starts to, you know, you see it in the beginning where <laughs> he starts to learn the English language by watching Law and Order. <laughs> right. I like that. I like oh that. Oh, my God. It is hilarious. He's all like mumbling in the beginning, and then he finally starts to get it down. And, and Alan had a beautiful take on it because he said, you know, what this person, the alien has to do is, is look and observe and replicate. So you see it as he's, you know, going in, and uh, he's like really socially like really not he's not reading the room ever because <laughs> he doesn't understand right, it right. so he you know the first thing he does is he pulls up in his truck and he's looking over and there's a bunch of kids having a snowball fight and then this guy gives uh the other kids the middle finger so he's immediately like looking and he puts a middle finger out and he's like oh what is this is this a way of communicating right and uh so it's just so funny because as you think about it, imagine a person that's come from this alien planet that now has to learn the language, that now has to learn all the idiosyncrasies and, and uh, little nuances of the language, of body movements, of handshakes, of eye contact, all these things that he's totally new. It's like being a newborn and, and going into this world, and that's where the comedy starts and it just escalates from there. I don't want to be a spoiler alert on it because I really want people oh, right, right. to see it because it is extraordinary. And Chris Sheridan's writing on it is so on point. You're laughing from one scene to the next. And Dave Dopkin, who was the director on the pilot, we had uh, collaborated on Into the Badlands together uh, which I absolutely loved our collaboration there. And uh, so he brought me in on this one, and we I think we really rocked it out. I, I, I really enjoyed the pilot, and I especially like the line kind of like, whiskey makes you make great decisions. And yeah. being, I'm dehydrated. Humans probably never do this. And being an old whiskey guy myself with a retired jersey, and I don't need to get into it. I was just like, yeah, whiskey does lead to great decisions. Uh, <laughs> I love when he goes, so I just, whiskey is a great decision. I'm going to murder this kid. <laughs> right. It's like so right. inappropriate, right? It's like, okay, this right. adult is going to now murder this kid because the kid is the, is the, uh, the chink in the armor because he's like the only one that can see him as a true alien. Right. No, it was, it, I, I was wondering like, is there a, a specific extra challenge when it's a pilot because you're really having to just build that 
floor stone. I mean, I know as creatives, we always want to put our best foot forward, but you're kind of like having to do something that say the next eight, nine, 10 episodes aren't going to be under your eye or your visuals. What, what is that process? Yeah. Like? So, you know, the designing the pilot, you know, we had five weeks of prep to, to put uh, this pilot together. And, you know, it was a bunch of tons of location scouting and a lot of, uh, you know, look building and look books and, and David Dopkin had put together a beautiful lookbook uh, that I could then build off of. And uh, we collaborated with shot lists and, and blocking schematics and all that stuff. But the big thing is, you know, we wanted this to not feel like a television show. Uh, we wanted the camera to move like you usually don't see cameras moving unless, you know, you usually see a walk and talk, but... The, uh, you know, that's like your only movement in most television shows. Uh, this, I wanted the camera to move in ways that uh, explored. And as an audience, you are finding your way through it. So we had, you know, a lot of drone work that would like drop out of the sky and go through a hole in the trees and see this red pickup truck pull up in a dusted a uh, forest floor of of beautiful blanketed with snow, and then the uh, the actress that our Native American you know gets out of the car and she's walking with bare feet on the snow, and we're tracking along with that, and then we boom up as Alan and her fall into just this epic uh, shot of the Colorado Rockies, um, and you know it's like these were the kind of ways that both David Dopkin and I wanted to really show people the world of, you know, pleasant Colorado and this whole nature, you know, the idea of middle of nowhere, uh, you know, limited use, six months uh, out of the year, the roads are closed. You know, how can we, in uh, a matter of three minutes, tell that story to educate the audience. And I think the first three minutes of any uh, show is so important because you have to not only tell them who, what, where, and why, along with when, you have to also swoop them in because you know that they have that remote control toggle and they will immediately jump to the next thing if it's not wowing them. So when we craft the three minutes, all the movies that I'm shooting for Netflix, the first three minutes is the most important thing that we conceive. And then after that, we can kind of take our foot off the gas. Not, you know, not to say um, that, but that is kind of our focus is the three minutes of the movie. This is when you're going to grab them. This is when they don't want to be going to the bathroom or, or, you know, saying, oh my God, this looks boring. I'm not into this. And I've really made this, my um, kind of my mantra where it's like every movie I do, every TV show I do, how important these three minutes are to educate the audience, to show geography, to really get them in the zone of like, oh, what's this? And you immediately know with the writing as well. Like we're, we're doing that thing, a top-down shot of just this lone truck on a road. And then we go and we fly over more trees and we go over the cabin and we find this dude out in the middle of uh, a lake 
alone in a boat. And along this is like, yes, it's some, it's, you know, 72 someplace else, but not here. And then as the dialogue, the voiceover keeps on happening, I had four, you know, uh, Cokes in my uh, truck that just exploded, you know, and it's like, you're immediately like, what? That, that's, that's a very unique uh, thing to say in a uh, voiceover, you know? So the tone and where it's headed with the sarcasm and that humor is immediately introduced on, you know, the first shot. Ah, you know, that's, I, it's really interesting that you're mentioning the first three minutes because I'm, other than how I, like, discovered, literally, I watched, like, I always say, like, 24, West Wing, all those shows I would have never been able to watch before TV on DVD. I just would not have waited a week. No. And the only show I've ever watched where I've waited each week is Grey's Anatomy. But the reason why I laughed when you said three minutes was because when I saw it for the first time on DVD, opening shot is Patrick Dempsey without his shirt. And my girlfriend at the time was like, oh, we're watching this. <laughs> so I go, oh, really? Like, how does that interest me that Patrick Dempsey, 17 years ago, like rolling out of bed with no shirt? Like, well, we don't even know what this is about. She's like, no, it looks great. And I was like, okay. So I just had to comment on, Absolutely. yes, I guess the first three minutes <laughs> is the exact perfect moment. Um, it, so with uh, with what you can comment on, does uh, when you see the pilot are at least a couple of episodes ahead written, so you kind of know into your what you're going after, or, or was this kind of like how some how a lot of shows are week to week to week? So did you did you know what episode two was going to be? No, or? we had no idea, and okay. Chris Sheridan had not really written them either because this was a a true pilot in regards to you know sci-fi. Uh, you know, just saying, do the pilot and we'll see if it gets picked up. It was almost like, you know, how the olden days were, you know, now they don't necessarily go for a pilot. They'll go, let's try six episodes and see if it hits. Uh, because the, the way people watch and ingest content is changed and having right. a one-off show really doesn't, um, you know, you can't get the arc. You can't see where it's going. So this took a long time. It was almost took a year and a half for it to be greenlit because I shot this thing in 2018. Wow. So it took 2020 January for them to actually green light it and uh, go for the, you know, getting the next six, I think they said six or eight shows is all, uh, you know, greenlit and, and in production. And I was, you know, unfortunately I was already, uh, in a movie in Atlanta shooting Holiday with Emma Roberts when they said, hey, Shane, do you want to come and do the series? And I was like, wah, wah, wah. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm already uh, booked on this. Um, and then when they came back for season two, I was like, oh, I just got booked on this other job. So it's been, <laughs> it's been a little difficult right. uh, getting back in the saddle there uh, just schedule wise, but, um, yeah, I mean, shooting the pilot they used in episode two and three, they used a lot of what I shot because we had shot too much for the pilot. So they took a lot of those scenes 
and uh, moved them into episode two and episode three. So my photography uh, is is in all of those episodes as well, little uh, scenes here and there. Um, but, you know, most of the time you have an experience where the cinematographer that's taking over what I've done in the past when I've come in, you know, I like to see the 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 uh lookbook i like to see i like to talk to the cinematographer asking him what his choices were what did they use any diffusion what the lenses were all these different things uh there was no discussion like that from the cinematographer that took over uh so i'm just gonna call him out on this one uh just so you know that that is not the etiquette that you want to uh use as a future cinematographer uh, when you go to collaborate with somebody that has shot the pilot and has developed the look of the show, uh, the first call should be to that cinematographer. That's interesting because I always wondered, like, I, I know, you know, from obviously just seeing Grey's that it, it seemed to be like the same cinematographer for so many seasons. And then they changed recently and, to someone who's been shooting a lot of the last two seasons. So I I thought it was a nice shakeup and it was interesting to... Uh, to see just that, you know, I know from like the first second who shot it. Um, so thanks for explaining that. Um, as far as television goes, uh, obviously in film, executive producers usually may be packaged or put the money together, or I'm going to say this is maybe just the lawyer and wants a credit. Um, I'm not saying you say that or agree with it. Um, so what is the kind of big difference so people can know of an executive producer in television versus in film. Yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of the the showrunners are the the powerhouse in television. Uh and they they really, you know, run the show from the ground up. They they're looking to find the directors. They're they kind of put together the package. Um and then uh once that director is selected, then that director works along with the showrunner to then reach out to the production designer and the director of photography and and all the the uh pieces and parts and and uh wonderful crew members in between um so you know i would say as an executive producer the showrunner is like the would be the the nuts and bolts of the vision where an executive producer, there can be several, you know, there's like a lot of, on the movies that I've been producing with Netflix, there's three or four executive producers uh, involved, uh, along with the Netflix creatives that, um, you know, are kind of shaping and choosing which actors are going to be in it and all the above the line, as well as the uh, higher up below the line uh, hires. So I, I would say that, you know, and it, 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 it really varies because I have many uh, executive producers that are very much like a showrunner that are, uh, you know, very involved in every aspect of the feature that you're doing. And then some are more, they just, you know, they hire the director and they let the director take over and, and, uh, you know, run it. I always thought that would be a cool gig because my favorite producer is Bert Schneider, who uh, most people don't know because what he produced, um, you probably know, but I mean, he made Easy Rider and the Monkeys and Last Picture Show and Five Easy Pieces and 
and then he made Hearts and Minds, scandalized the audience, and left. And I always thought it would be so fun not to scandalize the Oscar audience, but um, to just really, like you were saying, put some people together, let them make their movie. Of course, the surge in 70s American cinema and just like not have to butt in every five seconds. So I like what you're saying about that that still um, exists and it's not just, you know, you raised money or you have a say or it's a credit because you manage the actors. So thank you for um, breaking that down. So you've been a part of um, some iconic images and things that do last, um, whether it's the Seinfeld Superman commercial, um, people who really pay attention to film and are lucky enough to notice like Swing Vote and Drumline. Um, so before I jump into uh, music video stuff or uh, the, site, the commercials, um, I noticed that you have a strong theme of sports in, uh, obviously, We Are Marshall, Drumline, semi-pro do you have a background or were you a coach or is there something that draws you to sports films yeah this is what a great question paul i love this um yeah so i was a huge jock uh i started out uh very much uh my dad was he played triple a ball for the boston red sox uh in the late 50s uh, and was actually wow. drafted up to the show uh, and uh, was about oh. ready to pitch his, uh, you know, opening day at Fenway. And uh, his grandmother called, uh, who had raised him his whole life. His mom died uh, at childbirth. Uh -huh. So, um, and his dad kind of held that against him his whole life. So he had a very difficult childhood and, and, uh, being uh, seen as the son that killed his wife. Uh, so, you know, he had a very tough uh, upbringing, but he was an amazing athlete. He could play any sport. And with that came a lot of those genetics in me. Uh, and he okay. was, yeah. you know, all into, he wasn't that supercharged dad that was trying to get me out and practicing all the time and doing all this. I mean, he was working three jobs uh, as well. And, you know, we were just trying to make it work. We were kind of lower middle class in upstate New York and kind of the farming community around Ithaca. And, um, you know, it was, but he, he would, if I wanted to play catch, he always would play catch with me. And, you know, it was difficult catching him as a, uh, when he pitched, his balls would move like I've never seen balls move. I mean, he taught me how to throw his rising fastball. He taught me how to throw his curveball. I became a pitcher. Uh, I was, uh -huh. not only was I was this very strong and powerful pitcher that could throw 93 miles an hour, I also could hit and I won the batting championship two years in a row. Uh, so I was like, uh, there's like that one hitter pitcher that's out right now. I think he's playing for the Angels or the Mariner. I can't remember wh who he's playing for, but the guy's like knocking monstrous home runs. I didn't have the home run power, but I had the placement. 
So I had an inside out swing. So I would always hit to the opposite field and they never knew that a right-hander would hit that direction. So I was always able to turn doubles into triples and, and singles into doubles uh, based on them just not playing in the right position. Uh, so baseball was a huge love for me. And then I played basketball. My dad was uh, played in the church league. Uh, so every Wednesday and Friday we went and I saw this man just marvel in uh, just incredible basketball technique. Uh, and then he took over and started coaching the team. Uh, so I was always on the bench with him watching what he was doing. Uh, then I fell in love with soccer. And with soccer, I was able to really uh, go up the ladder of soccer very quickly. Uh, I was in defense. I was a fullback. And then uh, there was this one moment we were in high school. Our team was so good that we got to the championship. And before we were going to play at Shokoff Field at Cornell University, uh, my the coach at the time said, you know what? This is just for us to just have fun. You can play whatever position you've always wanted to play. So I'm like, well, hell, I've always wanted to try goalie. So they put me in the goal and everyone swapped uh, positions. And it was just a really great practice where we just had so much fun. And it uh, so we didn't worry and stress about the championship game. Well, what ended up happening was they could not score on me. And the oh, coach was okay. like, what the hell? So the championship game, I went from fullback to goalie. And uh, based <laughs> on that, there was this massive breakaway. I can paint the picture for you. Okay, it's about 8 o'clock at night. A light rain has started to fall on the AstroTurf field. The it's kind of the you get in that flare of the water mixed with the the beautiful uh, metal halide lights that are basking the field. We do a huge push where our whole line pushes up and all of our uh, fullbacks and everything. We're trying to 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 you know get a goal, and then all of a sudden the goalie gets it and he kicks it out to the side and. This guy kicks a long ball, and because our whole forces were up forward, it's one uh, striker and myself, one-on-one. -on -one. And he comes at me, and I come out of that, you know, the goalie box like a right, freight right. train. And I know I'm on the, the light rain, and I know the asphalt. So I go in for a body slide and block his kick, and he goes out over tea kettle over the top of me i grab the ball and and just as i'm on the edge of that um you know the goalie box line i drop kick it and boot it and it goes over the goalie's head and scores <laughs> that's great so after that there was this huge eruption and we ended up winning one nothing based on me scoring the goal as a goalie. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> I, 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 I'm the exact opposite. I, ha, I, 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 as a kid, I was just 
so bad at sports that by the time I got old enough to pursue it, I just felt like high school is not about being athletic. It's about meeting girls <laughs> in a nice, respectful way. I say that in today's world. Yes. And um, the, but I was a wrestler in uh, high school. Okay. And I do just sometimes really miss that, uh, not the smell of the mat, but I, I, I literally, you can relate to this as an athlete. I've had nightmares before where our coaches were having us run. Oh my God. And yes. I just feel sometimes like if I mess something up or I went for something, I just feel like one of my coaches is going to walk in the room and be like, all right, you know, we're in Kentucky, but we're going to run to Florida and get your shoes. <laughs> so, so, um, I, I, I find this interesting because you were, um, you know, you're mentioning all this sports background and, you know, we won't really get into Mr. 3000, but everyone check that out with Bernie Mac. It's hilarious. Oh, it's a really cool movie. Yeah. So, so yes. I played golf, uh, basketball, right. baseball, and soccer. Those were my four sports that I played at four times in the year. And uh, I also played tennis. I played around with like, you know, flag football because uh, our school was so small. We didn't have money for uh, a football team. Uh, so, you know, those are the four sports I played from, you know, literally little league. Uh, I was out on the little golf team. I was on the basketball team. I was on everything, you know, uh, AYSO soccer, all these things. As I came up, uh, through my childhood, I was playing all these. So when I started getting these sports movies, one of the thing that was really unique to the director's that were working with me are like, dude, I've never seen anyone shoot sports like you. What is the deal? And I said, you know, when you play the sport, you know how to get inside the game. You know the subtle nuances and you know where to put the fucking lens. Sorry, the freaking lens. Uh, you know, and you just know where that shot is going to be. And Mr. 3000 is a perfect example of understanding when a runner is about ready to steal the base, the, the, the nuances of looking at the pitcher, when he's going to lift the, the leg and if it's go, he's going to go forward or turn around. And, and also Bernie Mac also understanding that, you know, there's a way there's a lot of times, you know, we had in, in college base baseball, when I played it, there was this one pitcher we always went to at Morrisville. And we always knew when he was going to throw a curveball because he would roll, he, he would do a, something with his elbow. And, you know, it was something that we ended up, when I told uh, Charles Stone, our director, that, he's like, really? And then, you know, we brought Mark, uh, oh, God, what's his last name? The, the uh, sports coordinator. He did Mr. 3000 with me. He is, well, we'll, we'll uh he was awesome. I've done four movies with him uh, as our coach. Oh, wow. He coaches baseball. He coaches basketball. He coaches football. Uh, so um, he was so, he's like, oh, yeah, that's like a thing. And uh, so when we did that uh, whole thing with Bernie Mac reading the pitch, we had the guy curl in his elbow just a little bit, and that's all you had to see, and you knew the curveball was coming. So these things I picked up through, you know, playing sports and being immersed in the sports uh, that I really try to do what I call inside-outside photography. You get in it 
and, and experience the visceral feeling of what it's like to be inside the game. And then you jump back wide to orient and to uh, get the vision of what we all see on television. So, but the idea of being in it, so you feel immersed with it. So you feel like when the, 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 the body's impact or the crack of the bat or whatever that is, uh, you feel it, that, that sound, that, 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 uh, the immersion. And then you jump back and you're like, holy crap, he shot, he, he hit that ball very deep. Is it going to go to the fence? And, you know, and, and I also <laughs> try to do what you don't see in a lot of sport movies is A to B to C uh, photography. Usually it's the crack of the bat and then you cut to a wide shot where you're seeing the ball go over and then the dude jumps up in the air and, you know, it goes over the wall or whatever. I was like, how can we connect all those shots and tell the story together in one shot? So it was, you know, being able to see the crack of the bat and then we would tilt up with the ball. The ball would be flying in the air and then, you know, we're sitting there, it's going, it's going back, it's going back, and then all of a sudden, boom, in the right in the middle of the frame, the ball is caught by, you know, the, the uh, outfielder that we don't even ever see coming. So it's like, it's this beautiful kind of, you know, where you feel like you're in it and it's you're discovering it uh, for an audience. And we all know what it's like to sit by and watch ESPN or Fox Sports or whatever and sit at home and watch right. this. Uh, you know, now I have to say, okay, how can I change that up? How can I get inside the game, but then also orient the audience so they know what the perils and the stake is? Because if you don't show, ge show geography, you don't know where they're headed, what they're up against. Uh, I always say this in every action picture. If everything is this shaky cam type stuff, panning around, you know, making action that really doesn't have any action, and you don't see where everyone is going and what the peril and what the suspense is, then you've lost your audience. Uh, and I, I take the same kind of attack with sports because sports is action. There is a, uh, there is the crack of the bat, and with the crack of the bat, comes the action and just with the kick of the soccer ball, the throw of the football, whatever these things, this is action. And how can we immerse the audience and also give them the geography that's essential to uh, help the story? Well, I, I really like what you've explained because um, I would love to apply this to drumline. The, this is making so much more sense because I really was feeling it when I rewatched it. I, I really hadn't seen it in a long time. A music teacher gave it to me. And it was really, you know, to learn that lesson about pay your dues, do yes. your work, don't bring your attitude. You can be the best, but if you're, you know, if you're acting like an ass, you're not going to be the best. So uh, those drum solo, uh, I get uh, duels. I, I again, just a this is just such a tech question that was just blowing my mind. How many times did you guys have to shoot those? I mean, the continuity and the, like, what was that like? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that I do that's very different than a lot of cinematographers is I shoot with a lot of cameras. Like, you take Into the Blue, for example. This was a film, 99 days on the water, topside, a hundred days underwater. Okay. 
So, uh, and you're out in the elements, you're on this little flotilla of a boat that I designed uh, that, uh, you know, had serious horsepower, had a bathroom on board, and it, it was a catamaran. So we were able to store all our gear inside the catamaran hulls. And this boat, the Corinthian, it was, as it was called, held 14 cameras. Okay. <laughs> so the way I work is I prepare cameras like guns on a rack and we deploy them at whim. So I had four in underwater housings. I had one in steady cam mode. I had one on a 50 foot techno with a flight head. I had one on an aqua cam with a foxy crane that could submerge it and go underwater 10 feet and come out of water above water. Uh, I had two in handheld studio mode. Um, you know, all these cameras were just ready to deploy. Uh, so what we were able to do is because of this arsenal, we were able to react to weather. If weather started kicking our ass out at sea, we would swoop into a bay and we wouldn't lose our day. Uh, and this was the only movie at the time that had ever been shot on water that came on schedule and under budget. So it's like oh. that was a testament to when everyone said, Shane, you're crazy, 14 cameras and we don't have any big support boat and we don't have anything. I said, no, we have to do everything off of the Corinthian. Everything has to be there because I want to move around with this camera. I want to spin 360 degrees. I want to go underwater. I want to go above water. I don't want to have this massive boat there that we're quote unquote anchoring to so we can have all our support systems. I'm not going to be able to move the camera because if I just go 90 degrees, I'm seeing the end of the big boat. So, you know, and right. this technology, I'd use the same in drumline. I took a seven to eight cameras and we would get, you know, two on a wider lens and a long lens raking down the, the, the drum line, you know, down the whole line of drums. And we got it so systematized. I would have the minute I'd set the camera, I would I had a, a rope that was tied to the bottom of the dolly and that rope flew out. And we just held it and the drums just shoot, 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 stacked up to the line because it was the perfect, uh, you know, it's like looking down a line of columns and seeing every column. But if you look in the line, you only see one column. So we had to see down the whole line of drums so we could see all the sticks flare, right? And then I would right. do an overhead on the crane. And then I have a steady cam that was able to ebb and flow and follow them. And, you know, so all this is how I was able to shoot these uh, these drum battles in the very intimate way, as well as being out uh, looking in uh, was deployed with just a lot of cameras. And then I lit it in a way that I could shoot three directions. I could shoot, you know, let's say if you're looking at a compass, I could shoot north. I could shoot west and I could shoot east. The only direction I couldn't shoot was south, right? So it's like right, right. that way it kept everything uh, with contrast. You were never shooting into the light, let's say. You were always on the opposite side of where the light was. And then if they were, if we were looking directly at them, they were side lit. 
uh, you know, from each direction. And I just use that as my mantra for all the sports I do, uh, is just being able to, you can get three amazing camera positions and make it look awesome. Uh, you know, and then deploy two and three cameras at all these positions and you're just grabbing a lot of good stuff. That was so, I mean, obviously drummers like that are on it, but it made me think of that, uh, again, like you're saying, first few minutes of a few good men when the Marines are doing their guns. Um, obviously drum lines don't get in trouble if they mess up. <laughs> well, they do, but, um, I remember just being like, and I remember I saw it with my dad cause he's a Marine and I was like, what is you know, they're just so on it. He's like, uh, they're Marines. Like, you don't mess up. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you don't get a second chance. That's that's why they made it. Um, so I, re I really I really loved revisiting that. And thank you for what you just explained. Um, before I jump into um, semi-pro, before I go into uh, semi-pro, because you had mentioned uh, the having cameras all over, um, I wanted to ask just a few things about a November rain um, because this was so iconic in its own way and, of course, attached to the the double albums from the Terminator 2 soundtrack. But the video was just so mind-blowing. And, of course, there wasn't drones and uh, technology was different and there wasn't... Uh, I mean, there was effects because, of course, T2 had just come out. But... Um, what is it like to be a part of a video that just like you, you you just know it continues to find generations like yeah that was uh that was an epic uh i did um i did don't cry as well uh daniel pearl shot that and i was his uh lighting director uh slash i did all when, when i was in those the rain i did lighting director i did gaffer i did key grip i was all over that music music video circuit but when it came to november rain well, andy morhan the director you know he just wanted it epic and the the song had so much depth and and dimension to it and you know, taking over the Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles and revitalizing that thing with light and, you know, interjecting the whole orchestra into it all and, you know, using super wide lenses to kind of take in the, the spectacle of it all, as well as, you know, lighting. This is an interesting uh fact that uh, not a lot of people know. So, um, you know, uh, the lead singer there, what the hell's his name? Just, um, yeah, Axel Rose. Uh, he would not yeah. work during the day. He only worked at night. So... Oh, what a surprise Axel's being yeah. a pain. Sorry, go ahead. You didn't say that. I did. <laughs> so imagine the whole wedding secret sequence when he's getting married to... Uh, you know, Stephanie Seymour, we had to light that huge church at night for day. So <laughs> I had I had something like 12, uh, you know, 1500 amp plants. I had a river of horat that was going that was 12 feet wide. I had 
5618Ks blowing through on scaffolding through all the side windows just to bring the blue and the stained glass up. I had two 12-light muscos blowing through each rosary window. And then I was like, okay, we got that. That's, that's fascinating. But how do I bring the day ambience up in there? And one night I woke up at like 3 a.m. And I call these things nightmares, right? Uh, and I woke up and I would go, oh my God, I saw, uh, uh, I saw these, these um, skylights at the top of the church. I'll get a glass guy to come in, rip the skylights out, uh, bring huge, um, you know, anchor points to the beams up top. And I'll drop down a huge rock and roll truss uh, rig and suspend 150 uh, space lights on it, all gelled with blue gel. And everyone's <laughs> like, what the hell? Are you crazy? And sure enough, because I thought I looked up there and I go, my God, these they, we got huge beams. There's massive beams in here. We'll just attach to the beams. Well, sure enough, I send my key grip up there and he goes, Shane, this is all balsam wood. And I go, what? He goes, come on, we're in Hollywood. And I'm like, he's so right. It was, it was all balsam wood beams. So we're like, okay, so that's how that light mirror came in. And sure enough, we brought in the glass guy. He ripped the things out. We put in this, this rock and roll truss was 250 feet long by 40 feet wide. And it suspended these things that kind of looked like uh, jellyfish tentacles as they went up. And we pulled it up into the upper echelon of the uh, cathedral. And boom, we fired that thing up. And now we had day ambience. Um, ah. Yeah. It, it is quite the epic video back when for... I don't. I want to say maybe people under. I'm only 42, but maybe people under 35 might not remember that MTV used to have music. Yes. Hence the name music television. <laughs> and I guess now that I'm talking to you, it's been 25 years that I can say, "Shame on you for interrupting all the times that me and my baby were making out, and she had to stop to listen to that song." <laughs> um, but I haven't known you long enough to have hard feelings. So. Um, I was just like, oh, no, November rain's on. What the hell? Jeez, you heard this yesterday. Buy the records. Ask me to buy the record. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, I guess I would just ask, like, were you operating in the camera? Is how, I mean, how is that? Because there's just, that is just the epic helicopter video of all videos oh. so how, how did that work? actually daniel pearl shot uh all that helicopter stuff um after okay. uh we had shot all of the um all of the orpheum theater and all of the cathedral and some other set pieces here and there and then i was uh then they stopped shooting and uh, then I was, I took off to Morocco uh, with Herb Ritz to do this huge Levi's Loose Jeans campaign uh, in Morocco for a month and a half. And uh, so Daniel Pearl came in and shot all the helicopter stuff. So that was him 
he he rocked that out. He did it all on the middle to Tyler middle mount. You know, we didn't have the the basketball size port things that you see, so helicopters can really like fly very fast and pan 360 degrees. Uh, you had to really be uh, a uh, you know a great operator, and uh, you know he he did so amazing with that and got so super close to to slash and the the prop wash was insane <laughs> oh yeah i mean and that's such those the, and and i was watching again the other day and i was like that's slash without a hat that is like history in the making like uh yes like oh my gosh i mean i get it probably the wind or the helicopter going by but yeah. um yeah, so so thank you for explaining that because when I saw that on your um on your website and all the other great uh bands that you've uh gotten to work with is so amazing. So um that drives me to or that brings me to wanting to discuss a uh, really fun movie that uh Shane uh did uh Semi Pro with Will Ferrell. It's one of my favorite Will Ferrell movies and it's got Woody yes. Harrelson and I read I was going to ask about this, so I'm, I kind of read about it, but then I wanted to get your your take on it. Um, and please let me know if this was if this article was off. But it said you guys would do the television take, the movie take, and then a take where like the crew was told if you're if if you're not able to handle how funny it's going to be, is is this yes. true? You, for some things, you would have to do th- okay. Yeah. So t- tell me what that was like to have to face material oh where my God. Y- you might have to leave exactly. the Exactly. So it was, it was the kind of movie where, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Kent Alterman, who was the director and I, when we were conceiving this whole uh, concept of, of how we wanted to shoot this comedy was we, we did not want to do what Will Ferrell has done in the past, which is just sit a camera and let him go. We wanted the camera to move. We wanted it to be cinematic. We didn't want it to be this slapstick kind of film. But we came to a compromise where if we were doing a very, you know, complex steady cam shot or any kind of moves or whatever, we were going to do them in all of the different versions. So we would do our TV version. Like you said, we would then do the, the film version. Uh, which was a little more grittier. And then we would do the one where we would just let Will Ferrell and all the cast of characters just go off. And there were some times when I was on the dolly where it was so funny that the camera was shaking because I was laughing so hard internally to not blow the take that Kent Alterman was like, okay, Shane, you cannot be on the camera anymore. All you do is laugh and it's shaking. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll get, you know, I'll, I'll go back with you by the monitors and we'll bring somebody else up to operate. <laughs> but oh, I it love was it. so good. I mean, there were times like that scene where he goes off on the guy with the nachos. It's so random, all the stuff, right? And then the whole thing where he's jumping on the roller skates, the damn cheerleaders. I mean, it was just one extreme, you know, scenario to the other. And they just, it it was a film that I think 
um, you know, Will Ferrell had had run his course with all of the the kind of the parodies and all those uh, sport things, and for some reason, this didn't get the uh, love at the box office that uh, all of his movies were getting prior. But I think it's one of his right. best films for sure. And oh yeah, I do too. I remember we just uh, grabbed it on DVD one night with. Uh... Our other friends, my friend's wife was a huge Will Ferrell fan, and like you're saying, the the you know, the films in some way had run their course, and I was just kind of like, okay, I know the Will Ferrell stick, it's the Vince Vaughn stick, it's the, I know Jack Nicholson says do what works and get you paid, but it's like you're Jack, you're at least different in some movies, and I just was like, okay, but then I'm such a Woody Harrelson nut, and so I just yeah, like you said, it 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 was just so funny, and I and. and and when I rewatched it again last week, I was just like, I got to find out how they even made this. Well, the, the other thing <laughs> like... is, is Will Ferrell has great emotion in this film as well. And I think our style really gave him that opportunity. Because if we would have treated it like all his other, you know, um, you know, comedies, I don't think he would have had the mentality to really get into the drama. Because Woody's got a great arc and, you know, uh, and and Will does as well. And, you know, Andre 3000 has a great arc in that that movie. So we wanted to show that this just wasn't somebody that's just spitting out funny lines and uh, politically incorrect statements all the time. This is something that <laughs> it has heart. And we, I thought the look that we achieved on that movie was so out of the 70s and so spot on. I mean, I used, you know, glass from the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, you know, we, we shot on, uh, you know, the, the way we structured it and, and everything. I did the kind of the inside out uh, filming of the sports as well. And, you know, I just felt that that had such a, a, a wonderful tone to it. Yes, it definitely felt uh, like a 70s movie. Um, and I had just, um, when I when I heard we were going to set this up, I just thought, oh, I really want to rewatch this movie. And uh, of course, you know, we are Marshall. I've, I've been to Huntington, West Virginia, actually to show you how geeky I am and in love with film I am. We were, uh, I, I don't know why I thought that movie took place in Texas, I guess just cause Matthew McConaughey, but we were driving by and I saw the stadium and we flipped a Yui and I just walked around the stadium taking oh my pictures God. and just being like, just being like, this is where it was filmed. So I was, so I, I have it in my phone and I was going through it and I was just like, you know, what, what, what did it, I mean, it was just empty. It was this, it was right a little bit after the pandemic started. So there was just nobody around. It was that ghost town feeling that so many things had. And I just was, I just was like, wow. And what, a, I mean, it's just such a beautiful area. It must've just been amazing to be there. Um, I want to recommend this. And of course we won't get into the topic of swing vote, but I just wanted to, uh, mention it to audience. And then I had um, one question for you. Uh, Swing Vote um, has Kevin Costner. Yes. And uh, of course, there's no opinions from myself or Shane. It's just what the film is about. And it's really funny. It's for free on Amazon Prime. Uh, 
This is very iconoclastic. Uh, the electoral ties, the popular vote ties, and it comes down to one man's vote. The comedy ensues from there, from how they're going to get his vote. Um, but what I like to ask cinematographers uh, when they get to work with an actor who's also an accomplished filmmaker or director, um, we had a, we had Eric Spielberg on here, and he talked about working with Costner and Clooney and what it's like. So uh, just as we're all humans, but what was that like for you to like uh, work with Kevin Costner and somebody that you know you you know has the similar background and brings more to it than just being a movie star? Yeah, I mean, I watched probably Dances of the Wolves twelve times. That's an investment. Uh, that movie really shaped me as a filmmaker. I just thought the way that he told the story was so intimate and so, um, I, I just felt like I was on this incredible journey of a time period that not a lot of people know about that time after the civil war where you know, basically Andrew Jackson got on his high horse and tried to eliminate every Native American uh, in the planet. And, you know, that um, it was just it was just told that story was told so well. And when I first met him, I, you know, I bear, you know, bore my soul to him, you know, uh, about that project and and the film and how much it moved me as a as a you know, as a filmmaker and how I was so inspired by it and everything and he was you know he was a great he's a he's a great actor to begin with and he and Josh Stern really had a great relationship on uh that movie and um he was just so caring he was so compassionate with the young girl. Uh, he kind of took her under his wings and really showed her the ropes. Um, it was it was just a great movie to work on. Every day coming to work was just spectacular. And, uh, you know, we had a very uh, minimal budget on that movie. And it was, uh, you know, uh, as we look right now with all the voter fraud being thrown out and all this stuff that's that's pursued after the genuine January 6th insurrection and everything. This is a film you want to watch all over again because it has so much of those, uh, you know, very unique moments where you start to see uh, the, the political system kind of fall apart. And, uh, it, and it's a yeah, it's so it's so iconoclastic yes. for a comedy, and not like when they say, "Oh, Porky's was iconoclastic for the time," or breaking some kind of new comedic barrier. I mean, I just lost it when Kelsey Grammer walked off uh, Air Force One with a red tie. <laughs> I was just like, "How did they know?" Like, I was just like, "I'm not gonna." I know we already discussed that we're not gonna go too far into this, but I was just like, "That is way too much," and just. How would Dennis Hopper ever be president? I mean, like, I've just no. read way too many film history books to just be like, this is the coolest piece of... The guy couldn't make it to set during Apocalypse Now because he's on Clay News, but he's running the... So, so that was a... So that's, again, like you said, that's why I, with people, I 
please just do everything you can to just forget what you want to politicize or get upset about or whatever might trigger and just watch and enjoy this movie. Kevin Costner and his daughter are just uh, phenomenal. And I thought it was just so awesome for, I guess, however old the girl was, just to be in those moments where she's just totally holding oh, her I own know. with Kevin Costner. Yeah, just she like, wow. rocked it. I mean, every day she brought the emotion. She knew her lines. She was so... Uh, and Paula Patton was awesome in it as well. I, I love that actress, and she's really has taken off, uh, too. She's just absolutely stunningly beautiful and so talented. Um, and it was just a pleasure to work with all of them. And, you know... Well, and plus, uh, it's a nice... It's, I'm such a big George Lopez oh, fan. Oh, yes. So it was nice to see him before... Um, I'm just a fan of all his stand-up. In fact, I was watching one of them again last night. Um, he's just so... Uh, he, uh, my mother is Mexican, so all that stuff he says, it's just like, oh, that's my uncle. That's my grandpa. That's my... Exactly. So it's really... Uh, that's what I really treasure about him. Uh, so you guys, get go for it, even if it's for the cast. Um, I guess as we come to a close here, if it's cool with you, I just had uh, two, two last yeah, questions. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, the first one would be of, of your entire body of work. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be something we discussed. If you had to pick two films that you would want people to see, what would they be? Greatest game ever played and Terminator Salvation. Of course. Yeah. Greatest game was, you know, my collaboration with Bill Paxton and that man is an amazing filmmaker. Um, from day one, when I sat in his office, um, you know, interviewing with him, uh, to hopefully get the, uh, the gig, I went into his office at Disney and I remember, you know, back in the day, this is, uh, 2004. Uh, so, you know, the internet was not really, uh, happening. Uh, there was, you know, reference, uh, I, a lot of people said that I was doing something very unique because, uh, I would, I, I had a reference library. I, I literally lived at Arcana Books and Hennessy and Ingalls. And I would just sit there and just go from one photography book to the next, to the next. And I would buy them. I have a library of over 460 plus uh, photo reference books. And I would put it in my camera bag and I would uh, get my little sticky notes and I would label the ones in green that was composition. I would label the ones that were yellow as color. I would label the other ones uh, pink as lighting. Uh, and then I would bring this huge camera bag in and I would, you know, sit it next to me in my chair and, and we'd start to talk about the movie and Bill Paxton goes, all right, Shane. So what do you think that this movie should look like? And I was a person that, you know, I never went into an interview, uh, without a point of view. I was going to tell the director how I was going to shoot his or her movie. That's the way I enter an interview. I don't ham or haw or ask them what their thoughts are. Or, you know, not that I'm not trying to collaborate. I just think if you're hiring a cinematographer, you want to see the passion 
You want to see the commitment. You want to see how engaged this individual is. Uh, and because I'm interviewing the director just as much as they're interviewing me. So I come in with 12 guns blazing. And uh, I said, well, Bill, this is what this movie should look like. And I slapped down this book and it was bound for glory. And it was a series of FSA prints that were Kodachrome that were found in an attic in Oklahoma. And they were lost. And it was the first Kodachrome prints that were ever processed and developed during the FSA. So <laughs> they, they ranged from 1937 to 1947, this 10 year period where they shot color for the first time. So I took these wow. as inspiration for this 1912 kind of uh, look of the greatest game. And he looks at it and he starts, you know, flipping through it and he goes, no, oh, this is all nice and all. And I go, oh shit, I misstepped. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And he right, goes, right. I don't know. And he, he gets up and he turns around and he grabs this book on his bookshelf and he turns around and he, and he slams it down on top of my book. And he goes, this is what greatest game should look like. And it was bound for glory. <laughs> oh my God. I went out of that interview and I was driving down the 134 out to Pasadena to my house. And all of a right. sudden I see an 805 area code come up and I go, hello. Right. And he goes, Hey Shane, this is Bill Paxton. And I go, Hey Bill, how you doing? I want you to shoot my movie. And I was like, Oh, oh my, it was like, it was one of those greatest moments on the planet. And then when we got up to Montreal, every filmmaker brought their A game. And that's what was so extraordinary about that movie. Every single from production design to makeup and hair, hair and the extras and all the costume design and everything about that movie is just, it just what we were able to pull off for the, for the small budget that that thing was, was pretty amazing. And then you go into Terminator Salvation, which is like a $200 million sci-fi, you know, uh, where the machines are taking over the world. And my job as a cinematographer is to reinvent the franchise. So right. think about, okay, yeah, I get my blockbuster and reinvent the franchise. So it's like, that's a, that's like taking, you know, cinematography and putting it on steroids because not only. And, and that, and the, the second one changed cinema. So why don't you just re-record the Rolling Stones, <laughs> let it bleed and sticky fingers and make wild horses better, exactly. right? Exactly. Correct. So I was like, <laughs> all you need is a guitar. Yeah. I'm like, how am I going to reinvent this franchise and give it a look that, that is not so much the polished look that T1 and T2 had and all the blue tones and all this stuff. How can I kind of reinvent this? And, you know, this is back in my music video days and I was a huge experimenter. Um, I never took Kodak film stock for its ASA. I would bake shit. I was, I would, uh, 
process my own Super 8 in my bathtub, uh, which I did for Smashing Pumpkins, Chair of Rock. Um, I set that all up so I could literally develop and process the film with a, with a uh, you know, I would hum a song, which would be the perfect for developing, and then I'd slow it down and blow it out, and then I'd speed it up and underexpose it. Uh, so these are, you know, I was kind of a mad scientist with all this stuff. People said, Shane, you can't shoot on magnetic film stock. It's magnetic. And I'm like, I bet you I can get an image on that. So I'm like, all right. Kodak, give me thousand foot rolls of 2378. And they're like, we don't have thousand foot rolls. We have 2,050 foot rolls. So then I go to PhotoCab. Hey, Mark Van Horn, can you spool these down into 400,000 foot mags? He's like, yeah, no problem. But why am I doing this and putting them into a film camera when it's magnetic stock? I said, Mark, I'm telling you, I can get an image. And this was the genesis of Terminator Salvation. So when I saw all that silver that was baked into the magnetic film stock so it could, could record a soundtrack, I was like, this is the look of Terminator Salvation. These machines are taking over the world. So the reeds in the desert need to have a gray silver tone. The, 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 the sky needs to have a silvery blue tone. Everything is generated from the machines. And so then I went to uh, Technicolor and I'm like, all right, so I, I know the 2378 is just going to be black and white. That's what it gives me. But it's got tons of silver in it. So I went to, to um, uh, Oz, Frank Oz over there. What, what was his name? Uh, Frank, uh, he had a Z to it. And the, this uh, Zuccarelli. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was Frank Zuccarelli, I think was his name. And then it was another guy that came up with this process called the Oz process. And it was basically taking color negative and then putting it through a black and white bath. And what you got was an intense desaturation. And because we're laying 10 times the silver still on the negative, that's what's uh, making the desaturation because we're not stripping the silver. It's kind of like skip bleach on steroids. And But what it did is it gave really cool skin tones. It would still hold the skin tone and it would still react to red. So what do we have right. in this Terminator movie? We have red eyes and we have a lot of skin tone. So I was like, oh my God, we're gonna take it through this Oz process. So I did all the experimenting, all the testing and brought it back to the lab. And then I went to company three and Stefan Sonnefeld and we sat in the room and we looked at the Oz process stuff which was basically looked very black and white, but still had some skin tone and red would react. It took the desert and turned them all the reeds and the, the mountain ranges and the, the brown grass and it made it steel. And it took the sky and it just made it this beautiful cyan tones. And I was like, okay, this is what we, and he goes, let me see if I can replicate this without this process. So I'm like, okay. So we processed the negative uh, two ways. We shot 
two different uh, sequences. So we shot it where we process it in the Oz process. And then I had him do his best to finesse and, and bring that. So it had a little more color, a little more dimension. And then he took just the uh, 5201. Uh, we shot uh, this, um, you know, slow 50 ASA film stock. And I had him take that negative and just try to duplicate the Oz process in Da Vinci and and resolve and he was able to give us all the beauty and dimension with that process uh and we didn't have to do that whole photochemical thing so it enabled wow. us to get all the we took that as our inspiration and stefan said wow i've never seen a negative look like this and he did hours upon hours finessing this look and getting it to the point where we're like Mick G and I said, that is it. And so it just was, it was nice because it gave us the, the security of knowing that we still have a color negative, that we can go back to it. If, you know, all of a sudden the studio is like, why is this thing so desaturated in this thing? We could do it colorful. Uh, but at least we had the inspiration of this Oz process and, basically taking me back to exposing mag stock that was Terminator Salvation. Wow. Not only did you explain that awesome, you explained exactly why I almost flunked cinematography class in film school. Like, that's why right there, everything that you just said went, not now, but when I was in film school, just flew by me because I don't have a mathematical brain, and I think cinematographers are really mathematicians as well, of right. course. But wow, what a process. Thank you for explaining that. that was... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> it's kind of going down that whole road. Everyone thought I was like crazy. Mick G is like, what is, what are you, where are you going with this? And then when he saw it, he's like, oh my God, this is the reinvention of the franchise. And, you know, we just were off to the races after that. That's fantastic. Because I know, I know I saw three. And like you said, the uh, not you said, um, I know that the franchise had, you know, the, culturally, right, it, things weren't going to live up to two, and people have to just roll with that as movie fans. Um, so I had just kind of, I remember I had seen three on like a date and dug it. And then to tell you the truth, I didn't know while it was coming out that another one was coming out. So it was one of those like, you found out later. Oh, they're doing a they're doing another one. I thought it ended with three, and so um, wow, that's really amazing. So um, I guess uh, your work is so great. And again, um, you know, thank you for doing this. I had a wonderful time. Um, yeah, I just I really really appreciate. Oh it. yes, absolutely, and thank you so much, Paul. Uh, you asked incredible questions and. I think this, you know, we can talk about the tech, but it's also kind of, you know, the backstory of somebody's career, like uh, the sport thing was a really great question. And that kind of brings out the side of a cinematographer that you might not have known. So uh, you asked great questions. And I thank you so much for, for taking your audience on this journey. Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And so we wish you well and peace and safety during these times. And um, yeah, best wishes and aloha to you and yes, yours. Yes, aloha. Thank you so much, Paul. All right. Take, take care. care.
All right. Well, thank you again to Mr. Shane Hurlbut, ASC. Uh, gosh, there was just so many <laughs> cool things here in the notes that uh, we were unable to get to. Uh, that was a great conversation. Um, please check out um, Drumline on HBO Max. You'll also find We Are Marshall on HBO Max. You'll find Semi-Pro on HBO Max. You can check out Swing Boat for free on Prime. And of course, November Rain is on YouTube, the Guns N' Roses video. And then, of course, Resident Alien on NBC, Peacock, Hulu, and Sci-Fi Channel. And we always appreciate you guys listening to Talking Pictures, whether you guys are checking it out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Uh, you can also check out our website for photos, uh, top 10 lists, and other goodies at www.talkingpicturesla.com. You know my motto, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, make sure and watch a good movie. Aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast. Real conversation and movie-induced inspiration. 